Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22 to verse 29. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the, real, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. For how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. You see it. We've been going through the book of Matthew, and last week we began discussing <clears throat> the binding of Satan, but we could not deal with everything last week, so we're continuing that and we'll conclude uh, what is the nature of the binding of Satan this week from the Scriptures. Note that the context here is that Jesus, who has been healing people and has been doing marvelous things as the Messiah, he has healed this dumb man who was demon-possessed. This man praised God. You would think people would be excited. But it goes to show how, in various cases, how God has left some men in the total depravity of their hearts. These men were the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who could not rejoice in this man being freed from this horrific bondage to the devil, and actually accused Jesus of casting out that demon by the devil himself. Of course, Jesus said this was nonsense because a kingdom cannot stand against itself. Why would uh, Satan cast out Satan? It's not to his advantage to do so. He says it's ridiculous to even think that. So he says his kingdom cannot stand if he's about destroying his own kingdom. But he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then rest assured, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's upon you. Of course, Jesus had been preaching that. John the Baptist, the other apostles had been preaching that the kingdom of God had arrived. But Jesus says, by the Spirit that was with him without measure, the Scripture says, he casts out Satan. And now verse 29 says, and that the definitive proof that Satan is bound in this present age is the fact that Jesus says that Satan here is the strong man of the house, and Jesus has come into Satan's house, bound him, and therefore is plundering his house. That's the context. The house is Satan's domain. The strong man is Satan. And Jesus says, the fact that I am casting out demons, the fact that I'm authorizing my apostles to cast out demons, is the definitive proof I have bound him in this present age. So if you recall going through Matthew, that John the Baptist, Jesus, his apostles were preaching what? That the kingdom of God had already arrived. Now, the kingdom is not something that's future after the second coming of Christ, as someone teaches. What we have to do is we let the Scripture interpret the Scriptures. And Jesus says, the kingdom has already arrived. I have bound Satan. And so we see that this binding of Satan doesn't happen after the second coming. This binding of Satan happened at the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the teaching of Scripture. 
So we got to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We don't allow popular books to guide us. We don't allow videos or movies as popular as they might be. We've got to see what the Scripture says, and that's what we're going to look at today. This whole passage is proving from the Scriptures, and we're going to look at various, a lot of Scripture today, to demonstrate that Satan is presently bound, and that implication for you personally, for the whole church, for the world. You know, some might say, now, if Satan is presently bound, then I'd hate to see what he'd be like if he was loosed. Because <laughs> you just look out around the world and you see all that's going on. But again, we can't be governed by our feelings. We can't be governed by what we see. We have to be governed by what are the promises in the Word of God. We let the Scriptures speak, and then we line up our feelings, our perspective, according to what the Scripture says. So we walk by faith and not by sight, is what we do. Now, as we have said many times before, we must not be uh, misled to think, as some want to tell us, that, you know, we want to emphasize practical things in Christianity, and we don't want to emphasize biblical doctrine as if there is some dichotomy, uh, some radical junk, uh, disparity between doctrine and practical Christianity. No, we're going to see that all doctrine of Scripture is immensely practical. All these, and that's all what. Biblical doctrine is, is the truth of the Word of God. And every truth of God's Word has its proper application. So what value is it to us to understand then what Jesus is saying here, that he bound the strong man? Well, for starters, your salvation, my salvation, is completely dependent upon it. And it's not like that uh, people were not saved in the Old Testament. Uh, as, uh, because they were saved by faith in the Old Covenant as we are being saved in the New Covenant. However, there is a distinct difference in the advance of the Gospel in the New Testament age. The power to advance that Gospel is different, is greater in this age, especially after Pentecost. And so we see that our salvation is depended upon the fact that Jesus has delivered us from the bondage of Satan, has delivered us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Second, these truths of the binding of Satan have, uh, should give us hope, should give us guidance in how to endeavor to advance the cause of Christ in this world. Now, last week, I looked at, uh, we looked at several passages indicating that the story of the human race is, at, at the, from the dawn of creation, we see its set of a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There in Genesis 3.15, when God spelled out the curses uh, because of Adam and Eve's sin, he said to the serpent, he says that ye will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he, the seed of the woman, shall crush your head. Throughout history, we looked at some passages throughout history. We see this unfolding in, in, in human history, this struggle, this fighting between the forces of light, forces of darkness, the seed of the woman, and who is the seed of the woman? We know from Scripture, and it says that it's Christ. And all those who belong to Jesus is the seed of the woman. Who's the seed of the serpent? Satan and all his followers. And we're not talking about just his demonic realm, the demons. It's all unbelievers who were under his authority. And so we see that this conflict has been going on. Now, this conflict is not unpredictable. It's uh, the end result is not up to uh, guessing. The end result is definitive that Jesus will win. He has won and he's continuing to win and he will continue to win throughout history. 
Now, are you concerned about Christian missions, world evangelization? You ought to be. You know, the very success of world missions is predicated upon the fact that Satan is bound in this present age. And the success of the gospel is such that because Satan has been bound 2,000 years ago and is still bound according to the scriptures, then Jesus is defeating his enemies, as the scripture says, from the right hand of the Father when he ascended to the Father at his resurrection and his ascension. He sat down in keeping with Psalm 110. And he's been exercising that kingly role ever since the days of his ascension. Now, we read last week 1 John 3a, which said that the purpose of the appearing of the Son of God was for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. That's why the Messiah has come. When discussing uh, the binding of Satan, we need to explicitly take a look at two passages of Scripture where this binding is mentioned. Now, we already took a look at one, which is our text, Matthew 12, 28. But there is another passage in the Word of God where it refers to the binding of Satan, and that is Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, this is where that term, a thousand years, and a thousand years is the meaning of the term millennium, meaning a thousand years. So the whole teaching about the millennium, here is one of the few passages in Scripture where it mentions that thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, note, the binding of Satan here in this context is what, according to the Scriptures? that he should not deceive the nations any longer. That's the purpose of his binding. Now, when is the millennium? Now, that's a very hot, debated topic today. When is that millennium? Well, we can go at it from many angles. But right here, according to Scriptures, we are told, when when did Jesus say that he bound the, the strong man, the devil? When in, in his in his gospel I and mean, in his preaching ministry, he bound him. And we're going to see when he sent out his uh, apostles to preach, it says, he bound him, gave them authority. So this imagery of binding must be understood in each particular context. And in Matthew 12, obviously that binding means that he is what? Exploiting Satan's domain. That's why it says, when he binds the man, he can plunder his house. And so, Jesus, by his actions, by his ministry, is exploiting, taking advantage of Satan's domain, assaulting it. That's what he's doing. Revelation 20, what does it say? It says that Satan is not deceiving the nations the way that it was before Christ's advent. Now, in this regard, the Scripture presents the case of the devil and what he was doing to the nations. The nations were within his, we could say, his grasp. He has such great influence and explained why things happened the way they did all the way up to the time of Christ. But we see that nonetheless, at the dawn of of the advent of Christ, these things will definitively change in terms of the impact of that gospel message in history. Now, we can get confused sometimes about this nature of the binding. 
It doesn't mean, again, again I've, so many times I've mentioned what in, in interpreting scriptures. Words mean what they mean in their context. I've said that so many times here. Uh, everybody can recite it by memory now. We know from scripture. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Peter says that the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, some say, well, that doesn't sound like he's bound if he's a roaring lion uh, seeking to devour people. But what it's mentioned is, within his uh, ability, he is being controlled, and you can still be bound and still have an influence. It just means your activity is severely limited. You have to interpret that passage along with other passages. Now, we have seen that the Scripture says, with the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ and His coming, light has dawned upon the human race, upon the nations. Uh, take a look with me at Matthew chapter 4. We had preached on that a while back. But when Jesus would go up to Galilee... It is in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. Take a look at Matthew 4, uh, verse 14. In Jesus' decision to leave and go to Galilee to settle and use Capernaum as his base of operation. Look what it says in verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people were sitting in darkness, saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land, in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now this is based from... Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But I want you to turn over to Isaiah 9 and look not only what verses 1 and 2, but look at the context of Isaiah 9. So turn to Isaiah 9, starting at verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, and on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation. Thou shalt increase their gladness. Thou wilt be glad in thy presence. And with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For they shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, or the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. The work of Jesus came for the purpose, as John said in his epistle, to destroy the works of the devil in every respect. The light will dawn upon the nations, the Gentile nations. It began when Jesus, we said, goes to Galilee. They see a great light. What was their condition? Great darkness in bondage to sin is what their condition was. Now, <clears throat> he has come to bring that, that defeat to the one who's bound these people in darkness. Now, one other thing, if you turn over to Isaiah, while we're in Isaiah, turn to chapter 61. And look at verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now this is the passage that Jesus quoted when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth. When they gave him the scroll to read out of Isaiah, he reads that passage, sets it down and says, Today this word has been fulfilled, and they just went crazy. Because they understood this was a reference to the Messiah. But Jesus says, and he's telling well, I'm he. I'm that one. I'm the promised one. And everything will change because I've appeared upon the stage of human history. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Let's begin reading at verse 1, and we're going to read down through at least verse 10 and 11. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child. She cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now! The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, we have seen here that this imagery of the sun, the moon, and the stars is Old Testament imagery. It actually is leading to Joseph's dream that he had with reference to his family and the preeminence that God and his sovereignty would give him one day, which was worked out when God sent him to Egypt. We see that these 12 stars, like it was in, in uh, Joseph's dream, was a reference not only to the sons of Jacob, but it's a reference to the tribes of Israel. And so it alludes to the tribes of Israel. And this verse four, uh, 3 and 4, this, this scene from heaven that's depicted, now you just got to understand, as you know, Revelation is very, uh, has great imagery. And we just have to take it for what it says. Sometimes the timetable needs to be worked out, but what's important is we understand the, the thrust, the principles of what's being conveyed here. It says that a third of heaven, it says that this, this uh, Satan, when he was cast down, it says he took with him a third of heaven. This is what basically, essentially, is what Jude 6 talks about when there was a rebellion in heaven, when Satan, when uh, that great angel fell, it says a, he led a host of those with him. That's the demonic realm. But it says they had a great fall from heaven. Verses 5 and 6 here says that this woman who was about to give birth to the male child, it says this male child, there's no question about who this male child is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Messiah. 
It's the one that who will, as Scripture says here in Revelation, he's going to rule the nations with his rod of iron. That's exactly what Psalm 2 says uh, that Jesus is going to do. As we saw in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, we've already taken a look at that. What will be the nature of the Messiah's kingdom? It will be a kingdom of peace, and it will extend, and there will be no end to this extension. He is the God, mighty God. He is the king of kings, and his kingdom is that of peace. When he comes, he does bring peace. How? By converting us, by letting us see the light dawning in our minds, and the gospel when it comes to us, we then have seen that great light. In this context here, uh, the woman fled into the wilderness. We've already read that in Matthew 2. It's a reference to the fact of King Herod. What did when uh, the Magi came, said they wanted to worship this king of the Jews, and King Herod says, well, I want to know where he is. Where is he going to be born? And he gathers his, the Pharisees, and they knew the prophecy of Micah. He said, we'll be born in Bethlehem. And that's why Herod, being as he was, jealous, and he was going to see to it that this child would not survive, so that's why he had every male child from two years and under killed. And of course, we're told in Matthew 2, we read that way back, the spirit, I mean, the, uh, Joseph was told in a dream by an angel, take your family and flee to Egypt. That's what's being referenced here. And so we see in verses 7 and 9 now of Revelation 12, you have this battle going on between Michael uh, the archangel and driving out the demonic realm from heaven to earth. This imagery is not so much the location as it is depicting the Satan losing his influence on men. That's what's happening. We're going to see that in a moment when we read a passage in Luke. Now note the kingdom of God in, in verses 10 and 11. What has happened? The kingdom of our Lord has come. The kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have already come, the text says. The kingdom is now. The impact of that kingdom is what? Salvation has come. The power to bring about that great salvation has come. Now, of course, we see that that Satan, what is this term that it says about him? It says he's the accuser of the brethren, right? That's a name for Satan. He accuses us day and night before God because of our sins. Now, it says that when it says the accuser of the brethren will be cast down, it means that his influence, his influence will be drastically hampered. Of course, the climactic victory of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent that was promised in Genesis 3.15 was Jesus' work on Calvary's cross. I want us to turn to, and this is a so important a text, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 14 and 17. Now again, let me say this. Remember, biblical doctrine is for the purpose of encouraging us to give us hope, it is to give us instruction as to how we should look at life. Again, we, we walk how? By faith, not by sight. We need to understand that this victory that Jesus secures is a magnificent victory, and it is the basis that gives us hope. It is the marching orders for his church Henceforth. And therefore, we have to have this solid basis uh, in order to move ahead and do what the Lord has commanded us to do. We'll take a look at Hebrews 2, look at verses 14 through 17. It says, Since then, the children share in flesh and blood, 
he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might, rent, might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, in this text, this shows us that work of Christ, he rendered Satan powerless at Calvary's cost. It says he rendered him powerless, who had the power of death. Now, we're going to need to understand, how did he render him powerless? How did the devil have the power of death in some sense? Because that's what the scripture says. You know, this passage shows how in this one act of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings justification of life to all those who are in union with him. We don't have the time to look at that great passage in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following. But in that that passage, it talks about the representative headship of Adam, how everybody sinned in Adam by his one act of disobedience, but then it says, the one to come by his one act of obedience would bring justification of life to all those in union with him. So, when it says in our text in Hebrews, by Jesus' death on the cross, he has crushed the head of Satan that was promised in Genesis 3.15. Now, to understand, well, notice in our verse 14 of our text there, it says that he must, that he shared in the flesh and blood, and he likewise partook of the same. The question arises then, why did Jesus, why did the Son of God have to become a man? That's the question. He shared our nature, it says. Why did he have to become a man? Why in, in, in Hebrews 2, just back up in Hebrews 2 and look at verses 5 through 10. So what I, no, I want you to turn to Hebrews 10. It's Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. I want you to take a look at it. I thought it was interesting when I was reading Psalm 40, and our, this is where we are in our reading through the Scriptures, this is part of our text today. Well, look at Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. It says, Therefore, when he comes into this world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the roll of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. After saying above, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, we know from scriptures, from Romans, that Adam blew it for the human race. Adam was a real man. Adam stood in our place. He was our representative head. Everything was riding on Adam. And he, and he sinned, and because of his sin, that one act of disobedience, all sin and misery came into the human race. He was told to keep the law of God that was revealed to him. What was that law? To not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he, but he partook of it. So he did not, if he had kept that, if he had obeyed, he could have merited for all of humanity eternal life. But he didn't. 
He sinned. And therefore, because of his sin, we have been doomed. So what's our hope? Our hope is in another champion who will undo what Adam did. This champion will keep the law of God perfectly. This champion will pay the penalty for our rebellion as a substitute in our place. That's what this champion will do. That's why the Bible refers to Jesus as the last Adam. The first Adam sinned, the last Adam obeyed. Now, in our Hebrews text, I mean in our text in Hebrews 2, it says, Satan was rendered powerless. Well, how was he rendered powerless? And how is it that the devil had the power of death? Well, well, let's put it this way. Being that we have a sinful nature, and uh, how does the Scripture define sin? According to 1 John 3, 4, it says sin is every transgression of the law of God, right? Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 tells us that the law was given to stop, to clothe to close the mouth of everybody so that we all become guilty before God. Now, how is it that the law stops our mouth? We can just look at the Ten Commandments. As you look at the Ten Commandments, it's a summary of the law of God. There is not... And what does God demand about His law? What's made very clear in Galatians 3 is, Cursed is He who does not abide by everything in the law. Cursed is that person. We are under the constant demand of God to keep His law perfectly. And every time we see that Ten Commandments, we have to realize, I've broken this, I've broken this, I've broken this, I'm condemned, I'm condemned, I've sinned against God. I've violated His law. So what does, how does it that Satan had the power of death? What does the Scripture say in Romans 6? What is the wages of sin? Death is the wages of sin. Our penalty for violating that law is death. So where does the devil come along here? Well, the devil is called what in Scripture? Of the many names we've already alluded to, he's the accuser of the brethren. He's called the tempter, right? He was there in the Garden of Eden. He's the one that tempted Eve. And he's been tempting us, uh, the people, the church, all through history. So here's how the devil had the power of death. When he tempts us, See, he doesn't have to make us sin. He just presents the situation before us, and our sinful natures just take over, don't they? Well, the minute we sin, we die. So Satan had the power of death in the sense that he would tempt us, knowing that we would fall, and that was it. So to be under the law is to be under the dominion of sin. Now, one other thing, our text in Hebrews 2, if you notice, uh, look at verse 15 of Hebrews 2. That he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Because of our sins... We deserve judgment. And you know what? We know it. We know we deserve judgment. Don't we? We know we deserve that penalty. And in our unbelieving state, many people are dominated by that fear. And that's exactly what the devil wants. To have people dominated in bondage to their fear. And, you know, one of the blessed realities of being a Christian is that we have been 
delivered from Satan's uh, bondage, and we have been delivered from his oppressive accusations against us. So let me ask you something. Do you have a fear of death? Do you fear judgment? If you have a real fear of death and a real fear of judgment, you need to take a look at your profession of faith. Because I want you to turn with me to 1 John 4. 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now this is where, remember I said, doctrine has tremendous practical application to us. Are we afraid of dying? Are we afraid of that judgment? As a Christian, you ought not to have any fear of dying. As a Christian. Now we may not like the process, and you're not... Uh, well, who would like to be burned up in a, in a fire? Who would like to be eaten by a shark or something like that? But we do not or should not fear death. We shouldn't fear judgment day because of what Jesus has done for us. And this is where, you know, that the accuser of the brethren comes in. And notice it says he's the accuser of the brethren. That's us. The accuser of the church. The devil comes in and he says, see that law? You've broken that law. You've broken that law. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You deserve to die. And how dare you call yourself a Christian? How can you be a Christian? <clears throat> have the thoughts that you have. Do some of the things that you do. Though you're, not, you're not practicing sin. But we fall into sin, as the scripture says. And he comes along and tells us that, and he accuses us and accuses us of that sin. And you know what we need to say? We just need to tell him to get lost. I'll never forget when my brother-in-law several years ago was dying of cancer. And uh, we, we'd known he had made some profession of faith years ago of sorts, but I wasn't sure. And we went down to Charlotte. And uh, he'd just been told the bad news that uh, he didn't have much longer to live. And I was talking with him. And I wanted to know for sure where he stood with Jesus. And as we talked, and he, he clearly affirmed that he was trusting only in Jesus for his salvation. He knew he deserved uh, God's condemnation, but he, he was trusting in Jesus. And he said to me, he says, John, do, do, you, do, you have any doubt, do you have any doubts? And I said, you know, that old rascal, the devil. He comes and he wants to bring those doubts. And it says, and we realize that we have fallen short. But you know what, Chuck? I said, what you have to do, you have to trust in what Jesus has done for you. And the accuser of the brethren has been defeated. Just tell them, look, you're not telling me something I don't already know. <laughs> if you're a Christian today and Satan comes along and, and he's tempting you, he says, well, you're body law. Well, yeah, I know that. That's why I need a Savior. That's why I run to Jesus. Because he's my hope. You haven't told me, devil, anything I don't already know. But I'm trusting in my substitute. I run to him. He's my rock of refuge. He became a man to keep the law for me. He became a man to die that terrible death for me. And so, devil, you don't have any authority over me anymore. And 
I have been forgiven in the Lord Jesus. I don't have to face Judgment Day with fear anymore. Now, I don't know what's more important than that, friends. I don't know what's so more important than understanding that. It is life-transforming when you let that sink in, that great biblical truth. You know, it says, uh, how do you think, throughout church history, you may have read about those great stories and testimonies of Christian martyrs from the earliest days of the Roman Empire all the way up to the modern day? How can all these Christians face death with apparent joy? Because they understand there is no fear in perfect love. They have trusted Jesus the accuser of the brethren has no authority over them. He's been rendered powerless in their life in that respect. You know, the glorious thing about what the work of what the Bible says, what Jesus did to Satan on the cross, turn with me over to Colossians chapter 2. Look at Colossians 2. And look at verses 13 through 15. For he delivered us from the dom- from the domain, now I'm reading the wrong passage. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 15. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and has taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What was that certificate of debt of decrees against us? The law of God. And it says he took it out of the way, nailed it on the, on the cross. And by doing that, he made a public display of Satan. I have crushed your head, Satan. You have no authority over my people. I have rendered you powerless over them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah that he's been rendered powerless in my life in that respect. Jesus dealt the death blow to Satan on Calvary's cross. Just like Genesis 3 predicted at the dawn of time. He shall bruise your heel. He'll get you crucified. And he think he is one. But in getting Jesus crucified, it will be his own demise. He will crush your head. Now remember, in Revelation 20, we're told that the binding of Satan in the millennial age is so that he won't deceive the nations the way he deceived them before. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And let's read verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves is your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For, for God said, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now we refer to this passage numerous times. The God of this world is who is Satan. And what has he done? Blinded the minds of the unbelieving to something very important. Blinded their minds so they cannot see the glory of Christ. They, here's a light. If I'm blinded, I cannot see that light until that veil is removed and I can see the light. 
every unbeliever is blinded by Satan. We referred to that last week. There is no one who arouses himself to take hold of God. No one. We don't have that ability to do that. And yet it says, that light, he says, through that preaching, it says, that light shall shine out of darkness. Remember what, what the scripture says about Jesus and that the, the coming to Galilee of the Gentiles? The light shall shine in those who are sitting in darkness. They will see a great light. How do they see that great light? Because the Lord opened their eyes. You know, there's a great text there in Acts 16. You don't need to turn there necessarily, but Acts 16:14, when Paul came to Macedonia, it says he went down to a riverside where there were those who had gathered often for prayer, and there was a bunch of women who had gathered there at the riverside, and Paul began to preach to them. And we're told in Acts 16, one of the women there was Lydia, a seller of purple fabrics. And it says, as Paul was preaching the gospel, that the Lord, what, opened her heart to receive the things spoken by Paul. You know, when that gospel is preached, remember what Jesus says, you have to have ears to hear. You've got to have eyes to see. And if God doesn't open your ears, and if God doesn't open your eyes, you will never see. You will never hear. Well, praise God that He opens our, our ears to hear the truth, that He opens our eyes to see the light of the gospel of Christ. So this is how important it is. We need to understand and this is where the biblical doctrine of man's total depravity is so vital in evangelism. We need, and, and we need to understand that no one will ever believe in Jesus unless God has mercy on them. That's why we engage in the activities that we do. That's why we pray the way we do. Because unless God opens their eyes and their ears, they'll never believe. In this respect... Turn with me, while we're still in St. Corinthians, turn over to St. Corinthians chapter 10. And look at verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations... And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. A fantastic passage that says we're engaged in a spiritual war. And we, what's happening here, it says we are destroying what? Fortresses. Well, whose fortress? Satan's. It's where Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, he's, we'll, we'll get to later, he says, the church, he says, I will build on, upon the testimony of Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not be able to prevail against it. Hell, as it were, is a fortress. It's a citadel, it's a domain of darkness. And with divinely powerful weapons, what does the church do? It attacks that fortress, it breaks down, it secures that fortress, and it takes captive people. It takes prisoners. And, but how does it take prisoners? It converts them, is what it does. You know, that, that great Psalm 110 talks about, The Lord shall sit at my right hand, and uh, it says, In that day... All those, he will, the king will stretch forth his scepter. And then it says, all those, it says, he will defeat his enemies. He will rule in their midst. And it says, his people will volunteer freely in the day of his power. When that gospel is preached, 
the gates of hell are crashed. And we storm through, you've seen the images, the army storming through the gates. And they take prisoners. And in these prisoners, we're taking captives. Those who were once in darkness and now been brought to the light. Turn with me to Colossians 1 and you'll see. Look at verses 13 through 15. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's what happens there in St. Corinthians. Bringing captive all thoughts to the obedience of Christ. We have been transformed out of darkness into light. We see Finally. And we're brought into his family now. You know, the whole ministry, the Apostle Paul, is summarized by Paul's own testimony in this way. Turn with me to Acts 26. Look at verses uh, 16 and following. 16 through 18. Paul is giving his defense before King Agrippa of the Jews. He's recounting how, how Jesus saved him on the road to Damascus. And then if you, if you know in that, in that account of, of Jesus saving him on the road to Damascus, it was there that he said, and he revealed to Ananias who would restore Paul's sight to him, he says, he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear testimony to the Gentiles. He raised up Saul of Tarsus, saved him, so he became the great apostle to the Gentiles. So now Paul was telling this to King Agrippa, what happened to him. Let's pick up at verse 16, where Jesus said, But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people, from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Brethren, why is all this binding of Satan so important? We've been looking at all these passages because unless he is bound and he will, unless he has been, his power rendered powerless by Jesus, no one will ever believe. But because Jesus has done that, because he has won the victory, then that secures our success in world evangelization. That's our success. And yet, as discouraging as it can be, that the church doesn't grow faster than it is. It's in his timetable. But we have to remind ourselves. Look, God is the one who has to open ears. He has to open eyes. I can't do that for people. I, I, I've got to talk to them, but I can't do that for them. God says to have mercy. You know, in this preaching of the gospel, when Jesus sent out his apostles to preach, turn over to Luke. 10, as we wind this down, look at Luke 10, verses 8 through 11, and then verses 17 through 19 of Luke 10. But Luke 10, verses 8 through 11 says, And whatever city you enter, and therefore, and they receive you, eat what is sent before you, and heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go to the streets and say, Even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And then he says, uh, <clears throat> then look over here in verse 17 through 19. It says, The seventy return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And what did Jesus say? Verse 18. 
And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You know all those passages in Revelation 12 we were taking a look at? There it is. In the preaching of the gospel, Satan was falling from heaven like lightning. Why? Because Jesus had bound the strong man and was plundering his domain. And nothing could stop it. Nothing could stop Jesus. Nothing can stop us from plundering Satan's domain. Now, yes, when we see that today, does Satan like his uh, domain being plundered? No. He raises a lot of stink about it, and that's why there can be some persecution. I mean, after all, we are in a war. But let's keep this in mind, brethren. The victory is ours. The victory is ours. We'll win. And we will take captive all those to the obedience of Christ. And there will be those who will be freed from that darkness and will be transferred into the kingdom of light. That's a wonderful thing to see it take place in people's lives. Personally, to see that value. Many of you, praise God, were raised in Christian families that you've known Jesus all your life. Some of us different. I was different. I didn't have that privilege. But God saved me out of darkness. I knew what it was like to walk in darkness. And I saw the great light. And I knew the mercy of God was upon me. There are those in darkness. Those are, there are those who are the elect from the foundation of the world waiting to hear the good news. And we need to tell it to them. And we need to have the confidence. And we need to take that message to the who? The brokenhearted. Remember, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There are people who are burdened with their sins, there are people who have fear of judgment. There are people who are afraid of dying. Pastor Moorcraft talks about he knew a guy who was so afraid of dying. You know what he did? This is one of my favorite stories. The guy would not sleep at night. He put toothpicks under his eyelids so he wouldn't fall asleep. This is what the guy did. Because he was afraid he might die in his sleep. I don't know why keeping toothpicks on your eyelids would do something. But what it brought out was this fear, this fear that this man was under. What does Jesus do in his atoning death? Perfect love casts out fear. And all those who are depressed, all those who know they deserve God's condemnation, we can bring the good news, bring the good news to them. Now, men have to hear. Men have to voluntarily respond to that gospel. You know, one of our obligations not only is to tell them to bear testimony, but you've got to pray for them. You've got to pray for them. You have some, uh, you have some loved ones you, that are still... In darkness, you need to pray for them. The thing about it is, the Lord may take you to glory before you see what God may have done. That won't be the first time that somebody did not see God answer their prayer. But you know, the power of prayer is this. Since we know... This is where doctrine comes in. Since we know that men can't free themselves, I've got to pray and ask God to have mercy. That's what I have to do. And beg God to have mercy on their souls. And there is, brethren, there is an interrelationship between prayer 
and the decrees of God that we don't fully understand, but the Scripture tells us we have not because we ask not. You pray for them. You pray for them. And in God's due time, it worked. You know, my mother was 85 before she gave her heart to Jesus. All those years that my brother was a Christian and I was a Christian, all those years being concerned about my father, my mother was in the background. She was living with my brother at the time in Knoxville when she couldn't stay in her house much longer. Watching Charles Stanley from Atlanta. She told my sister-in-law, you know, I don't think I've ever really trusted in Jesus before. Eighty-five years old. And she gave her life to Jesus. And my brother said there was a change in her. You never know how long it's going to take. You just don't know. You keep praying. It is one of the divinely ordained weapons that St. Corinthians 10 talks about. It is. So this whole binding of Satan, hallelujah, that Jesus, in his first advent, bound the great enemy, defeated the great enemy, and you know what all it is now in a military term? It's just a mopping up exercise. That's what it is. Let's pray.